everybody. How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty good. As usual, I got some lovely correspondences from some of our listeners, and I always enjoy hearing from you guys, and it's really great. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but our listeners are the best people in the world. Our interactions are almost invariably pleasant and thoughtful and kind and considerate. And that's a real problem. Because I'm trying to grow our demographic. And, I don't know if you've noticed this, but just a cursory glance outside will reveal that people who are kind and considerate and thoughtful are not in the majority necessarily. So, if I want our brand to grow, I have to reach out to horrible people. So, I've put together some life hacks for horrible people, and maybe they'll get interested in the show as well. So, here's tip number one. Are you looking to start uh, doing some recreational shoplifting for things you don't need from a small, independently owned business? But you don't know what to steal? Here's a hint baby food containers. They're small, they're relatively expensive, they're easily concealed, and if you get caught, the store owner is less likely to prosecute because they will assume that either you have a baby or that you are friends with Robocop and that the dad from that 70s show has just shot him up real bad and now you need to give him baby food because that's all he can eat. So, they're not going to press charges. Tip number two. Got a roommate who's annoying you? Why not put a bullion cube in the shower head? Then when they want to get clean, they'll smell like soup. Ah, that'll teach them. Tip number three is a little bit specific. Do you work in advertising? I feel like if you're a horrible person, there's a pretty good chance that you do. Well, if your firm is representing a company that sells pharmaceuticals and makes those commercials for them, you'd probably like people to ignore the medical warnings that you are legally required to include in the advertisement, right? I mean, that's why you make the doctor's voice say them boringly but really quickly at the end. Well, here's an alternate plan. I saw one commercial a little while ago where they introduced a character who said some of those things conversationally in the text of the commercial. Well, that's a step in the right direction, but what you need to do is introduce a character who is intrinsically unreliable to convey that information. My suggestion? Have the medical warnings read by the ghost of Osama bin Laden. People won't want to listen to him. They'll assume he's lying and buy all the drugs just to spite him. And then you can have the main character in the commercial who's fighting, I don't know, depression or warts or whatever, Say, thanks for the tip, the ghost of Osama bin Laden, and then bust out a proton pack and zap him. So, I think the sales for that fictional drug that cures warts and depression will be through the roof. Tip number D. Are you making a flower arrangement for a person you don't like very much? Don't put any lilacs in it, because lilacs are the best. They're beautiful, and they smell great. That one's just mean. I don't think I can do this. 
Uh, disregard all those tips. Don't do those things. I'm happier having a smaller group of listeners that aren't horrible people who won't put lilacs in their flower arrangements. All right. Without any further ado, let's uh do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Molly Hayes Hernandez. If you like a new song, then you're feeling the bop bliss. If you listen to Hub, then you'll hear a synopsis. Thanks, Molly. Molly also brought up to me the idea that seeing as, depending on the continuity, his dad is either a lighthouse keeper, a fisherman, or a sea captain, there's a pretty good chance that Aquaman has a main accent, and now I kind of can't think of anything else. So, thanks for that as well, Molly. Defenders, number 30, December, 1975. Gold Diggers of Fear. Written by Bill Mantlo. Drotted by Sam Granger, inked by Jack Abel, lettered by Karen Mantlow, colored by G. Rousos, and edited by Marv Wolfman. Defensive lineup Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, The Incredible Hulk, Nighthawk. Previously in the Defenders. A titular non-team decided that they were done with their time-traveling, far-flung, futuristic non-team-up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and headed back to their temporal hometown, the 1970s. Gadzooks! With the previous storyline being concluded and this being a standalone fill-in issue by a different creative team, will I still have to come up with three questions relating to the previously in the Defenders segment for myself to answer? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so, apparently not. Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme, is wandering around the streets of New York because Clea told him she needed some peace and quiet. Good for her. The self-absorbed sorcerer is having a fine time, distractedly meandering about the city, lost in thought, when a gangster-looking guy hops out of his car and threatens him with a gun. Steve doesn't notice. He's too busy thinking about what a good, good boyfriend he is for giving Clea some space. When it finally does register to him that someone is talking to him, he apologizes to the gun-toting thug, assuming that he is a nice young man who has a question for him. The exchange is fucking delightful, and I love the idea of Steve basically being Mr. Magoo, but without the problematic ableism. As a matter of fact, you could totally do a Mr. Magoo story without changing the plot at all, where he isn't blind. He's just a super-privileged, rich old white dude who has never had to pay attention to his surroundings, who stumbles into situations he doesn't understand but confidently imposes his own narrative on, based on assumptions rather than any evidence. Then he walks away unscathed from the chaos that results from his ignorance, completely oblivious to the damage he's just caused. Shit. I started that analogy off with the idea that Doctor Strange was Mr. Magoo, but now I think maybe America is Mr. Magoo. Deep. Now, where was I before that profound political statement about 1950s cartoon character Quincy Magoo? Oh yeah. So, once the gangster finally manages to communicate the fact that he is indeed trying to threaten Doctor Strange, Steve uses his magic powers to throw the dude in a garbage can. Hooray! Two more gangsters hop out of the car and reveal that they have a note for the good doctor, from billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond the inconsistently secret identity of the Defender Nighthawk. Despite having just witnessed the Mighty Mage use his eldritch powers to dispose of their unfortunate crime crony, the thugs are astounded when Steve makes a piece of paper levitate. 
The note states that Kyle is being held captive, and that he would like Steve to pay a ransom for him. Certain apparently random words are capitalized, which would usually imply that some kind of code is being employed. But, weirdly, that isn't the case. Fair enough. Steve decides to play along with the thugs and says that he is the executor of Kyle's estate, which he isn't, and that he has a bunch of money in a safe in the Sanctum Sanctimonious, which he doesn't. The duplicitous doctor escorts the two non-trashcan encapsulated crooks back to his pad, where he has Wong drug their drinks and tie them up. These instructions were conveyed pretty subtly, so either Wong is super intuitive, or Steve has standing orders to slip a mickey to any guests, unless specifically told otherwise. Let's just go with the former. The Magoo-esque magician then heads up to his study and has an astral tete-a-tete with Nighthawk, who confirms that he has indeed been kidnapped by the Mafia. I'm sorry, the Magia, the incredibly lazily named Marvel Universe stand-in for the Mafia. These murderous, uh, Magiosos are holding the affluent avian aficionado hostage at an old movie studio in L.A. that Richmond Industries has recently purchased. If it's not too much trouble, Kyle would like to be rescued, please. Steve says, cool, he'll round up the other defenders and they'll be there in an hour. The next stop on the old Astral Express is a southwestern desert. Astral Steve appears in front of the Hulk and tells the Green Goliath to meet him in L.A. The uncharacteristically pliant purple shorts-clad powerhouse happily agrees. Steve then pops into Valkyrie's bedroom without knocking. Damn it, Steve! The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger is startled, but not surprised by the creepy conjurer's sudden apparition. She too agrees to accompany the socially inept enchanter on his socialite-saving sojourn. Shortly thereafter, the defenders rendezvous outside of the abandoned movie lot and take a page out of the Teen Titan crime-fighting handbook by treating themselves to a bit of eavesdropping. In the course of their five-minute stakeout of the movie lot, our heroes learn that Kyle is being held hostage by a dapper criminal wearing a top hat and tuxedo with tails. Does he also carry a cane? Of course he carries a cane. The dude is half a pair of eyeglasses away from being a tall, svelte version of the Penguin. The arguably well-dressed villain introduces himself as Tommy Tapper. Okay. It turns out that the Mr. Peanut cosplaying creep is a tap-dancing musical theater-based criminal. Superheroes beware. Tommy demonstrates his supervillainous bona fides by treating himself to some unnecessary exposition. You can tell he's new to comic books because when he shares his origin story with Kyle, he does so without staring off wistfully into the middle distance. Rookie mistake, Tommy. The tap-dancing tyrant tells the trussed-up tycoon that he grew up on this movie set, where his parents were bootleggers during Prohibition. They got busted when Tommy was five, and then they died in prison. Since then, Tapper was raised by a stagehand named Hodges who got him some work as an extra in musicals. Then, lavish Hollywood musicals fell out of favor, and Tommy and Hodges got mixed up with a mafia, I'm sorry, the magia, and I guess started being great at crimes or something. Then, a few days ago, the Natalie-attired ne'er-do-well learned that Richmond Industries had purchased the studio and was planning on turning it into a housing project. So the capering crook kidnapped Kyle, who he confesses that he has no intention of ever releasing. Once the ransom is paid, Tommy plans on killing his captive anyway. After informing his hostage both of his backstory and his murderous itinerary, Tommy Tapper does a little dance. Hooray! Wait, when this comic came out, Prohibition had been repealed for more than 40 years. Tommy must be in his mid-50s, and Hodges must be, like, close to 80. Those guys look great. 
combination of a life of crime and musical theater must have some serious health benefits. I bet Rita Moreno must do some crimes in her spare time, because that lady looks amazing. Tommy's exposition-inspired rug cutting is interrupted when the Hulk Kool-Aid mans his way through the wall and starts mauling Magiosos. Val and Steve join in as well. Hooray! The fight isn't as one-sided as you might think, because it turns out that in their spare time, when they weren't doing crime and tap dancing, Tommy Tapper and Hodges also invented a bunch of evil robots, which they use for both crimes and as movie props. You know, for all those lavish Busby Berkeley musicals that had a ton of robots in them. Oh, and also, Tommy is an amazing sword fighter because, sure, why not? Despite the myriad methods of mayhem in Tommy Tapper's metaphoric quiver, the defenders are somehow managing to hold their own against the middle-aged song and dance man. Impressive. Steve manages to free Kyle, who has taken the time to change into a spare Nighthawk costume he has hidden on his person. A couple of things about that. A. Even for a guy as haphazard about his secret identity as Kyle seems to be, actually getting undressed and redressed in front of the supervillain seems both reckless and inappropriate. And two, that costume has both a huge billowing cape and a freaking jetpack as part of it. How the hell was that concealed on him throughout the entire kidnapping process? Did they have Jinko jeans in the 70s? Anyway, the defenders appear to have Tommy and his crime buddies on the ropes, but then the prancing polymath busts out some gas grenades out of his top hat, and our heroes all pass out from the fumes. Whoops. When the defenders awaken, they find themselves manacled to the centerpiece of an elaborate musical set piece. They are surrounded by blank-faced steel automatons dressed alternately in either tuxedos with top hats or frilly dresses. Hooray! Tommy asks Hodges to hit a button, and when he does so, the robots start smacking the chained-up superheroes around, while speakers built into the mechanized musical marvels blast the lyrics to We're in the Money. It's pretty great. Val brings up that even if she got free, she couldn't fight back against the robots wearing dresses because due to her mystical nature, she can never harm another female, and I guess that includes robots that somebody put in a dress, which seems really dumb. At first, the shackles are too strong for even the Hulk to break. Oh no! Then they aren't and he does. Oh, okay. When Val sees the Hulk break his bonds, she's like, that gives me an idea that's so crazy it just might work. She tries to break her bonds and does so. Brilliant! Once free, Val smashes a bunch of the robots that aren't wearing dresses, then frees Steve who in turn frees Kyle. The newly liberated defenders smash the shit out of all the robots and the Magia goons run away. Hooray! Tommy is about to have Hodges push another button to summon more robots, but Val smashes the remote control, which thankfully is not wearing a dress. Tapper tries to run, but Steve uses some of his mystical nonsense and traps the Terpsichorean transgressor. Hooray! Tommy Tapper pleads pitifully for mercy. The Hulk says that he likes the little man and wants to be friends, then he headbutts him. So, I guess Tommy is dead now. Huh. wonder what's going to happen to all those Magia guys who ran away. I bet they're going to be in trouble for fucking up so bad. I mean, when Condorleone, you know, the hodfather of the Magia, finds out, he's going to be pissed. I hope his 
Bonsolieri, Rom Fagan, is able to calm him down. So stupid. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am doing well. How are you, sir? I am doing well. I am glad to hear that you are well. All is well. Indeed. So, what did you think of this issue? Ah, I thought it was a little bit fun. I thought it was, um, I don't know. It's very self-contained. I, I'm used to things kind of moving along in the, the you know, in the long game sort yeah. of deal. And what did they, were they just sick of that? This is a fill-in issue. This is a atypical writer and an atypical artist. It was written by Bill Mantlo and drawn by Sam Granger. And I think this is just, it, it is what it feels like. It's a filler issue. It is a filler issue. And I wanted to ask you what your opinion was of Wolfman's credit on this as edits and stuff or edits and things or something like that. Yeah, it's... What are those other stuff or things he did? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, he is credited as edits and stuff. Yeah, yeah fuck it. <laughs> Whatever. Also, uh, I just on that note, I was a little bit disappointed because it does basically start off with a very bold claim of, like, you're about to read some really weird shit, man. Yeah. And it wasn't that weird. It was pretty weird, but I know what you mean. I definitely got the impression that it was trying a little bit too hard to be weird and not carrying it off in as naturalistic a way that Steve Gerber does or that Bob Haney did in the old Teen Titans stuff. It reminded me of a more self-aware Bob Haney in a way that made it a little bit less fun. Like mm. it was trying for that. Right. This is one of Bill Mantlo's early writing credits. Bill Mantlo's a writer that I like a lot. He wrote all of the ROM series. Oh. Uh, he also wrote Micronauts. He did a really good run on Alpha Flight. He has written a lot of comic books uh, and is a very good writer, but this is a very early effort from him when he was doing a lot of issues like this mm. that are fill-ins for when another artist and writer team are running behind on an issue, which is what I get the impression that this is. But it kind of felt like it. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure though, though, to write the Hulk and to write Doctor Strange and these characters that... Yeah. Are so well known now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, I mean, he was familiar with the books. He had colored a previous issue, but he was just kind of doing fill-in work at Marvel at this point. Both as a writer, he was doing some editorial stuff, some coloring stuff, just kind of helping out where he could and waiting for his break, which he ended up getting pretty soon after this. But yeah, you mentioned it seems like it's a lot of pressure for him to write all of these very well-known, very well-established characters. And I think he did a pretty good job with some of them. Frankly, I think he nailed Steve. I think he did a really good job writing Steve, and that was a lot of fun. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what it says on his fucking business card. <laughs> like, I think that is Dr. Stephen Strange's battle cry is... I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I love what he's thinking to himself before that scene, too, where he's like, hmm, Claire asked me to take off. <laughs> yeah. That's weird, but okay. I like taking off. Hmm. Clea wished to be alone this afternoon that she might further her studies in solitude, and I did not protest, wishing to walk the quiet of the city streets by myself. Hmm. And then he's interrupted by, Hold it right there, fancy pants. Yeah, like I said, I think Mantlo did a great job writing Doctor Strange as just kind of a distracted 
above it all character and i think he had a lot of fun with that and it came through and i think Mm -hmm. he kind of nailed doctor strange he did a less great job writing some of the other characters specifically the hulk felt really off to me it felt like he was almost like a children's book version of the hulk yeah and i i think we'll have opportunity to touch on that later when we get into the minutiae yeah, I certainly will. But varying degrees of characterization. Clearly, he was familiar with the characters and was trying some stuff. Uh, some of it worked, some of it didn't. Much like uh, Eric Von Lustbader thinking, <laughs> what would what would Jason Bourne do? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Did Eric Von Lustbader write some of the Jason Bourne books? The ones, I think, that came out after the movies. I mean, you probably just know him from the awesome ninja stories. Well, yeah, and Zero. Is that another ninja one? I'm pretty sure it's a ninja one. I read, like, two Eric Von Lustbader books. Mostly, I just love his name. (laughs) It's so much fun. I think I got them from you, actually. It's (laughs) entirely possible. But he did the, like... (laughs) So the Bourne movies are probably based on books. And then he did the ones that are... The books that are then based on the movies. Very meta, yeah. Yeah. There was one that I read when I was a kid that wasn't Eric Von Lustbader, but it was the novelization of Total Recall, because that's based on a Phil K. Dick book. Yeah, okay, all right. But then they did a novelization of the movie that was written by Piers Anthony, which it's like, yeah, that sounds about right. Oh, jeez. (laughs) It was not good. I read a bunch of those as a kid, actually. I remember Aliens. Uh Uh-huh. That was by Alan Dean Foster. Yes, who is actually also quite good in his Uh other uh original works, much like Eric Von Lustbader. Sure. I read the Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Do you remember who that was by? No idea. Could have been by Craig Shaw Gardner. I know he did a bunch of them. I know he did the Batman movie one. It could be. And then uh, Rambo 1 through 3. Ooh. Yeah. Who were those by? Do you don't remember? I don't remember. It was a long time ago. Let's say that they were by... John Updike. <laughs> Probably. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> run, Rambo, run. <laughs> I, that's, I was going to say it, but you beat me to it. It may not be as promised. We open what promises to be one of the weirdest adventures ever to befall a group of Marvel superheroes. Read on, adventurous one. It's not that weird. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Let's get into what probably the weirdest aspect of the story is. Tommy Tapper. Mm. What do you think of Tommy Tapper? He reminded me a little bit of, and it's been a super long time since I've I've read The Flaming Carrot, but of the Artful Dodger Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think mostly just in that he wore a tux with a top hat. But he danced around and he did, you know, whimsical crimes. Sure. But... I mean, Tommy Tapper's crimes aren't particularly whimsical. Kidnapping. Yeah. (laughs) Torture by robots. Yeah. Kidnapping, robot, torture. I mean, there's not no whimsy. He's wearing a top hat. Uh, Yeah, it has a Busby Berkeley musical feel to it, Mm -hmm. uh, which is driven home by the title of the comic book, which... At first, I was like, that doesn't make any sense, and I had to actually do some research to see what it was a reference to. I'm glad you did, because I was going to ask that question. Yeah, the issue is called Gold Diggers of Fear, Mm. and it's a lazy reference. There is a movie called Gold Diggers of 1933 that was a Busby Berkeley musical that I think is where they got We're in the Money from, and, you know, a big, elaborate 1933 musical, which, when this came out, that was like a... A 42-year-old reference. Okay. So, basically, that 
reference was as removed from this comic book as this comic book is from today, which is insane to think about. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Mind blown. Okay, it is the weirdest thing. (laughs) It's the weirdest story you'll ever read. Yeah, so Tommy Tapper, he has a both vague and too detailed origin. I ended up thinking of him as evil musical theater Batman. His parents weren't necessarily killed, though. They were just incarcerated. Yeah, they died in prison. So in a sense, they were killed by the law, the way that Batman's parents were killed by criminals. And then he grew up in a theater and was raised by Hodges, who's kind of his Alfred. Okay. But it's, it's this weird mishmash of things, which don't fit together. So it's weird in that sense, but it's not weird in like a coherent storytelling sense. Because his his origin is his parents were bootleggers who were operating out of a movie studio. I don't know why they were operating a distillery out of a, out of a movie studio. And that kind of doesn't make a ton of sense except for trying to, I guess, bring up a like 30s feel to it in general. And then they died in prison, and he was raised by this guy who I guess built robots for the sets of movies, mm-hmm. and he just got to live in the movie studio mm-hmm. for his whole life, and so he's obsessed with musicals and got work as an extra in the movies, and then also crime and the mafia. So the three disparate elements there are the bootlegging, mm-hmm. why is that happening on the movie studio? The Mafia, which isn't necessarily related to the bootlegging, maybe. I mean, I could see the connection there. I think, and I think, the movie we, I think we could argue we wouldn't have the Mafia that we have today if it wasn't for the prohibition of alcohol. That is fair. Speaking of the Mafia, I misspoke. It is not the Mafia that is represented in this story. It is the Magia. The Magia also, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, there's some pretty interesting accent work going on. We can talk about that whenever you like. I would like to delve into the Magia. Okay. Are you familiar with the Magia as a concept? Other than that, I am told it would take an entire panel to explain how many times they've shown up before. It didn't ring a bell. They had shown up a lot in the Marvel Universe before. They were created for an issue of the Avengers that came out in, like, I think, 65. And they are very clearly a stand-in for the Mafia. They didn't want to say Mafia for a number of reasons. Basically, that number is three. And the reasons are, one, they didn't want to potentially offend Italian-American readers. Two, they didn't want to offend the actual Mafia, who had a pretty sizable influence on the distribution of comic books back then. And magazine distribution in general was uh, an industry that the mafia was very, very much in control of. Uh, So they didn't want to offend the actual mafia. And three, they could copyright Magia and get a little bit of money that way. Interesting. But it is a dumb stand-in. Like, that is just a dumb name. It's so lazy. It's just like, it reminds me of, is it that the Bloods can't say words that begin with C? And so they substitute bees. Have you heard that? Uh, no. It's a thing that they do. Oh. It makes words sound very dumb. So instead of cuz, they have to say buzz? (laughs) Yeah, I might have it backwards. It might be the other way around. Uh, It might be that the crips won't use words that begin with B. 
But either way, it makes people talk dopey in a way that is funny, except for then you're like, oh, but then they might murder me. So mm. I guess it's not goofy, but it sounds goofy. Yeah, I hadn't heard that before. Interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm pretty up on gang culture. So, yeah, that is lazy. They just moved over a They letter. just moved over one letter and then we're like, oh, we got to add one more. We got to double that because otherwise it, uh, it would be a soft G. And we don't want it to be the Magia. Because that sounds too much like Gift of the Magi. And then, oh, Henry's going to sue us. Oh, jeez. Yeah. He's got deep pockets. <laughs> oh, Henry. Yep. You and your candy bars. Oh, candy bars, deep pockets, and twist endings. The O Henry story. So, when you have the Magia involved, then you end up with musical theater evil Batman. Mm-hmm. Tommy Tapper. Mm-hmm. And his hapless henchman. Hodges. Smiley, Louie, and Foxy. Oh, I forgot about Smiley, Louie, and Foxy. They're the Magia guys, right? <laughs> yeah. Not the robots. Right. Okay, because yeah, Hodges the... built the robots for use on movies, I guess? Uh, it's a mystery. Yeah, I think he says they can be used as movie props, but also I can use them to kidnap and murder people. This is another thing that crops up in comic books way too often, which is down-on-their-luck villains who turn to crime, but still seem to have nearly limitless resources. Yeah, so that's another thing about... So we're talking about the, the character of... Tommy Tapper? Tommy Tapper. Yeah. And his origin story. And the thing that really pushes him over the edge into crime is the fact that his theater is going to be purchased and turned into condos or something. Yeah, low-income by... housing, actually. Right. Now that Kyle okay. is being responsible with his financial holdings. Oh, about time, Kyle yeah. Richmond. But that's the deal that, that makes him lose his shit. Yeah. So, huh? Yeah. You got a theater. It's full of robots that can do basically anything. Yeah. But you don't own your theater or somebody bought it from you. Like, it doesn't... No, that's the thing. He seems to have all of these resources and, like, mob ties. He could stop that deal. Why didn't he just buy the theater? Yeah, there's a lot there that doesn't make sense. But I think it can be summed up by this. Theater folks are bad folks. Oh. <laughs> yup. The stench of grease paint is all over that one, and I think I was being redundant when I said he was evil musical theater Batman. Oh my. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I am a fan of musical theater myself, as you know, Corey. Perhaps more much, so than Much yourself. more so than I. I have endured countless hours of actual <laughs> musicals in your company, because I am a good person. Yes, you are. Unlike actors. <laughs> I'm sorry, if you are an actor and you are listening to this, I'm sure you are a good person. Uh, I myself have just had a number of unfortunate encounters with the theater community. I used to bartend at this place that was around the corner from a local theater, and the patrons of that would come into my bar, and there would be a lot of performative drink ordering that was very frustrating to me, and they would quote movies at me all the time, apropos of nothing while they were ordering, and I never knew quite how to respond to that, so I developed a way of responding to that, which was whenever anybody quoted any movie at me, my response was to deadpan back to them, yeah, I ain't afraid of no ghost, Ghostbusters. Ah. And they never got it, and they never thought it was funny, but it amused me, and I think they thought I was dumb, and they just nodded and smiled at me, but, uh, yeah. Touche. Yes. Can you think of any examples of the performative 
drink orders? I'm I'm curious. Now. Oh gosh. I've heard some stupid abbreviations. Maybe you've been over the man who ordered a shot of tech from me. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, I, I'm trying to remember, like, how did these things even come up? But they didn't come up. That was what made it so awkward is, gosh, I'm falling down on the job because I can't really remember a specific instance. I know I definitely had the, I'm your Huckleberry thing from Tombstone quoted at me a lot mm. because it was vaguely alcohol related. Mm. And, like, for the most part, it's like, yeah, I get your reference. That's a good movie. It, it is vaguely related to alcohol. Uh, I would just like to to give you your drink, and then you can go back to your friends with the floppy-brimmed hats um, and enjoy your evening. And that, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You can do those things to each other. Don't inflict your performance on me, sir. Mm. I am trying to do my job. That's fair. So, that's that. All's well that ends well. Corey. Yes. I ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, 1984. I'm going to start adding the year at the end of that. Oh, that's good. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> to clear up any misconceptions. Right. Well, I, I mean, I guess, did they actually use the line in the reboot of Ghostbusters? Did anybody say that they weren't afraid of no ghost? I don't think anybody actually said it in the movie Ghostbusters either. Yeah. Where did that come from? It's that's from the song a... Ghostbusters oh, by Ray, Ray Parker, Parker Jr. Jr. So we find out in this issue, too. That Val also cannot use her fighting, p- fighting ability on any inanimate object that has female attributes. That is dumb as shit. Yeah, I wrote that down also. What I wrote down was, fuck, I hope nobody teaches Val any romance languages. Huh? Because <laughs> she'd have to, like, when you conjugate nouns, you have to decide whether they're male or female. <laughs> Oh. And so she'd just be end up in a situation where if she learned French, say, she'd just be like, oh, shit, shirt is female. I can't punch that guy because he's wearing a shirt. Oh, shit. Verbs. What? You said conjugate noun. Well, the nouns are the things that have the female and male endings. But I guess you don't conjugate Like a nouns. shirt. Yeah. What is it called when you change the gender of a word? I don't know. Let's conjugate works. Conjugate's fine. I think it's conjugate because your because your intent is to imbue these words with a sex mm. and it's like conjugal visits for words <laughs> for words <laughs> You're fucking those prison words good, Corey. Oh. I am not though. No, you're you're not cuz you not don't me. speak French. No. <laughs> do they they do that in Spanish as well, don't they? Yes. Shirt is female, right? I know it is in French. Camisa. Camisa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Camisa. Yeah, so she, I guess she can't punch anybody who has a shirt on. Well, it's not like that, though. Why not? Wait, so I mean, you're saying, it, like, Val is one of those jerks that, like, makes up nicknames for everybody just based on some random attribute? Like, hey, shirt. No, I'm saying if somebody has a shirt, then she can't punch the shirt because it might hurt the shirt. Because we find out that she cannot hurt inanimate objects that have female attributes what if like these robots it's like i can't even fight a female robot that is attacking me those robots aren't female they're robots but they are animate in a sense is that what the difference is maybe so maybe if it has moving parts either controlled autonomously like people or not autonomously like a remote control thing but she does blow up a remote control that the guy hodges specifically says she it's his device called the manipulator. Narrative says, this is all falling apart. It really is. Because as she blows up the remote control device, which Hodges calls his manipulator, 
Hodge says, no, not the manipulator. She's my best invention. I think Hodges may have overheard that she's like, oh, she can't hit any female robots. So if I say that my remote control is a lady, she won't be able to hurt my remote control either. So it must be only things in humanoid form. Because if she can slice up a female remote control thing... Does that mean she could punch a lady cat? Sure. Oh, okay. Or a rat. Okay, but not a badoon. We learned that one. Well, no, because they're humanoid. Yeah, this whole thing is nonsense. It's nonsense, and I don't understand what Val's thinking is on it. I think she's just afraid to even try. I think that whole incident with the Badoons has her a little, little like, gun-shy about trying to slug things that she's like, well, it hurt pretty bad when I stabbed that what turned out was a lady lizard. So I'm pretty sure that robots aren't people, but oh, it's not like these are elaborate robots either. This isn't like fucking Data or like the Vision or something. No. Nope. This is like... Like mannequins. Yeah. Can she fight a mannequin? Probably not a lady mannequin. That's so dumb. Yep. <sighs> we have an accord. It took a while to get there. All right, this is dumb. So Steve needs to learn how to fucking knock. Oh. When he just teleports himself into Val's room ah. and is like, hey, let's go do some stuff. And she is she is surprised. She deals with it pretty well, which actually leads me to believe that this sort of thing happens a lot while she is crashing at Steve's house. They probably did have some incident. Like, what the fuck, Steve? Like, not... You know, the bathroom or something. Maybe, but I mean, like, he is clearly in her bedroom and pops up behind her and says, forgive me if I've disturbed you, Val, but we've got to go. And she's like, who? Oh, it's you, Steven. That's not cool. And she is, like, picking up a shirt or something in one hand. Is she in the process of getting dressed or is she just picking up some clothes contemplating, should I wear clothes I, I think maybe just this metal brassiere is good, probably, right? Should I put on a shirt? Either way, still creepy of Steve. Yes, very much so. You wanted to, I believe, discuss their accent work of the dumb, dumb Magia goons? I sure did. So this is something that's come up before, like the way that you make people sound dumb. Uh-huh. But is also... You give them apostrophes in their speech. Yep. But also it's come up before that... Sometimes when it's written in a certain way, it's almost impossible not to read it in a, like a... Jamaican patois? Yeah. And and that happens a lot here, particularly because in, in one of the panels we have thing abbreviated T apostrophe I-N-G. Yeah. Which to me sounds very like... Ting. Yeah. Very dancehall. Yeah. Reggae. And then, and then he goes back to, to like regular... But it is like, too bad for you that is... Yeah, right? It's followed up yeah. with this. Too bad you said a thing like that, pal. Too bad for you, that is. Yeah. And then right after that, he's back to, Hold up, jerks! <laughs> the boss said blah, blah, blah. The boss... But that, honestly, all of that could be very easily read as a Jamaican patois, which I choose to believe he is using. In that scene, they are also floored by Stephen Strange making a piece of paper levitate, which is impressive, but... Like, it is a David Blaine street magic version of impressive that they are super surprised that he is doing any kind of, like, magic trick or anything when they roll up on a dude wearing a Dracula cape and pajamas. And they treat it like it is dressed perfectly normally. Yeah. They're just like, ah, another theater person. Ugh. 
And that's after, ostensibly, they witness him levitate their buddy Smiley into a garbage can. Okay, I think they were around the corner when that was happening, but I had the same initial impression. Is Yeah, because Smiley rolls up on Steve first. Like, he sticks a gun in his face and says, like, Hey, you're coming with me, pal. He's like, I'm sorry, I wasn't paying attention. What was that? And then realizes that the guy is threatening them and then throws him in the trash can. The guy that he throws in the trash can... First, he gets rid of his gun, and he calls the gun his rod. Which cracked me up. Me too. We were talking earlier about musical theater. Have I made you watch Robin and the Seven Hoods? Uh, is that the one with the Rat Pack? Yeah, it's the Rat Pack one with Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. as Chicago gangsters in a retelling of Robin Hood. Rings a bell. There is a song that Sammy Davis Jr. does in that song about how much he loves guns where he continually refers to guns as rods. <laughs> and it starts off with the phrase, cause I get so high when a rod is nearby. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me laugh very much every time. Yep, it cracked me up when uh, Doctor Strange throws him into the garbage can magically and he says, hey, what you doing? I dropped my rod. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. What a you surprise. Shouldn't, you shouldn't be holding your rod in public. No. Whichever kind of rod we are discussing. Yeah, neither. If you're Starman Any. and it's your gravity rod, you'll get a pass. That is the one exception. Good to know. But you know what? Mm. Chances are you're not Starman. The cover also had a thing that cracked me up, which was the Hulk saying, No! Hulk can't fight gas! Ah! Especially as we have discussed the Hulk's affinity for beans. Really, actually, if you read it that way, the cover becomes very funny. Yeah, yeah, there is an explosion coming from near Hulk's pants. <laughs> Everybody's Noxious horrified. everywhere. Oh, God! And Nighthawk is saying, We haven't a chance to get past these choking fumes! <laughs> he may destroy us all! No, Hulk can't fight gas! He can't. Oh, no. Now, what the Hulk needs to do is to shovel those fumes into his mouth and eat up that gas. It is the polite thing for the Hulk to do. He has many things, and I'm not convinced a gentleman is a one of them. A master of etiquette is perhaps not one of the Hulk's numerous sobriquets. Is that a title? That is a fancy word. I don't know what it means. Okay. Me either. <laughs> Sounds it has, good. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Sounds French. Yeah, I think it probably is. Oh. It could be a female word, in which case Val could not punch it. Hmm. Oui. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about the fact that this is a fill-in issue in terms of the writing staff. It is also a different artist on this issue. It's the first time, I think, in the regular run of the series that we've had an issue that isn't by Sal Buscema, hmm. which is weird. does a pretty good job for the most part. It's a guy named Sam Granger. He was mostly an inker for Marvel. He did some pencil work at Charlton, and he did a few fill-in issues for Marvel. Some of the characters look pretty good. When Kyle is in costume, he looks really good. The Nighthawk costume actually looks great. Mm -hmm. When he's out of costume... It's an almost 90s looking art style. It looks vaguely almost anime related, which is weird. Mm. And it's not bad, but it is different. The thing that bothered me about it is some of the movement of the characters just seemed really awkward. There were a couple of panels in which people just seemed to be facing in a way that didn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. The two that stuck out the most to me are when we first encounter the Hulk, his movement just seems incredibly unnatural. 
he's leaping and swinging his elbows, but like he he's like jumping away from Steve in a way that it just looks weird and awkward. And then a couple of pages later, when Steve is teleporting himself and Val to the site of the kidnapping, but Val is just kind of floating off at like a 45 degree angle to the panel in a really weird way. She actually looks like a mannequin in that scene. And that is after Wong has slipped Mickey's to the hapless Magia goons. Indeed. I like to believe that Wong just picked up on the situation that these are Magia goons that Steve would like disposed of. But Steve does just explicitly say, see to our guests and make sure that they're comfortable. And Wong is like, gotcha. What percentage of Steve's guests do you think he has Wong drug? Oh, no. Um, it didn't seem like that uncommon an occurrence. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be charitable here. Okay. And I think not that many. Okay. I think Wong is just good at picking up on Steve's... He is, he is very subtleties. intuitive. Yep. I, I want to believe that as well. Okay. Or he just errs on the side of caution and has two beverages ready. And if Steve comes back and is like, Wong, he's like, oh, sorry. Here, guest, drink this real quick. <laughs> I really thought Wong was just going to beat those guys up. And it it was this weird, unnecessarily elaborate setup where you never believe that Steve is in any danger from these thugs. He's not omnipotent. Yeah, and I don't know why he didn't just knock them out, put them under a spell that makes them tell the truth, do one of a number of things rather than go through this elaborate pantomime of like, oh, I certainly am afraid. Yes, I'll do whatever you say. Yes, I'm the executor of Nighthawk's will. And then one of them misunderstands him and says, yeah, he said you were his executioner of his things. No. I'm dumb. Yeah. Listen to these apostrophes. Yep. I don't know. Maybe he, maybe Steve was like, you know, Wong seems a little down lately. (laughs) Let's, I'll let him drug some, let him drug some, some thugs. thugs and send him to the cop shop so that he feels like he's doing a good job at civic things. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Cleaning up the streets, one dummy at a time. Then it's agreed we're letting Steve and Wong off the hook on this one. Okay. Are you ready to get into the minutia? Yep. All right. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. All right, what do you want to start with? Panels. Okay. Wow. Hitting it up with a big one. Tugging the curtain with a bang. (laughs) Okay. That's a phrase. That's sure. All right. Yeah, it sounds pretty theatery, but... Yeah, it's a a combination of theater and wrestling-y. It's how you order a drink in a bar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So what you do is, Mm. you go up to the bartender, Uh and you say something vague that doesn't actually require a response, Mm -hmm. but that he or she will feel obligated to respond to in some way. And you don't order your drink. You try to make it more of a conversation if you can. Like, and preferably a conversation that's about you and how great you are and how unusual you are and what a nice floppy hat you're wearing. I heard that bartenders think that is the best. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love it. It's our favorite. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and if you do that and you do a really good job of that, you don't even have to tip. (laughs) It's insulting to them because you guys are friends now. Yeah. And you don't want to accept money from your friends. It's awkward. You're like fellow artists of a Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, And if you can also 
have a elaborate drink that you read about on the internet mm. and just uh why don't you pull up that recipe on your phone and walk them through how to make it for you that it's sounds... fun because then you're doing a project together it, it's... it's like building a ship in a bottle together helpful too yeah you're and now you guys helpful. are best friends good buddies that's how you order a drink in a bar okay yeah i'm so glad that our listeners know how to do that now yeah you're welcome guys and bartenders of the world sorry <laughs> <laughs> so what was your favorite panel near the very top of my list is the one that you previously described as being pretty awkward i call it transportation it is really cool looking which is why it really bothers me that val is so awkward and stilted looking yeah i read it like steve's magic was just so like crazy powerful that she was almost in the sense of stasis and was you know kind of just like floating through time and space it does look like almost a magician's trick where he would levitate a lady where she is like lying down and is held in a stiff position but yeah i i get it it is a cool looking panel you said that was near the top of your list what was at the top of your list at the top of my list is one that's not nearly so dynamically drawn and it also corresponds with one of my favorite sound effects. May I guess? You may. Because one of my favorites was two robots in top hats beating up uh, Nighthawk and saying crack and whack as he is tied up and they are hitting him with their steel canes. It is not. I feel like I should maybe reconsider because <laughs> that was a really good one. It is a really fun one. That, that was, I think, my favorite. I call it crack whack and it is on page 23. <laughs> That is a great choice. Mine is is just the Hulk by himself, smashing the shit out of who knows what. And also the the sound effect is breaking out of the, the panel, or, uh, the borders of the panel. And the sound effect is cram with two M's and a K. And um, yeah, he's just punching things. There's explosions behind him. It's super dynamic. It's a really fun dynamic panel. I, I understand that choice. I think mine might be those robots beating up Kyle because the robots wearing top hats and tuxedos do look pretty cool. Just the blank, shiny metal face. It's on page 23. And one of them's hitting him in the head and one of them's hitting him in the knee. <laughs> and they're doing it all dancey. They're, yeah, and they're doing it in a dancey style as I what I assume are just kind of like tape recorders in their chests are playing We're in the Money. It's pretty fun. That's one of my favorites. My other favorite is on page six and it is steve using his powers again but it is he is using his power so that he and nighthawk can have a little tete-a-tete and it's just really cool looking he's dialed in this weird like hologram of nighthawk's head which is weird because i don't know if he is communicating with how nighthawk sees himself if he is communicating telepathically with nighthawk because when we see nighthawk he is tied up and not wearing his costume there's a lot of costume back and forth that happens with Nighthawk. We find out that he brought a spare costume with him just in case while he was on his, I guess, fact-finding mission about the movie studio that he just bought and is going to tear down. Walkabout. Well, he's not on Walkabout. <laughs> oh, yeah. He might be. He's kind of a Crocodile Dundee character just... in that he's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> It is a cool panel. It is a really cool looking panel. And he's, yeah, just summoning up this image of Nighthawk's head. It's a really well-colored panel. And actually, the colors in this issue really pop. It's colored by G. Rousos. It is an exceptionally well-colored issue. And, uh, yeah, it's a weird forest green with some Kirby crackle under it and pink borders around the image of Nighthawk. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was fun. 
It was fun. Good. I am glad we agree. On page seven, in that panel you mentioned where Hulk is super awkwardly drawn. Yeah. I just noticed he's still gassy. Oh, yeah. There are clouds coming from his pants in that, too. And look at his face and his <laughs> arms. He's really like, oh. Indeed. Oh, poor Hulk. Yeah. Poor what other is... defenders. <laughs> it's worse for them than it is for him. I'm sure. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? Who had to behave in a way that is contrary to their previously established character in a way that furthered the plot? To quote the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, who just had to be a sucker? This didn't really further the plot, but it was the most suckerish thing I could think of, and I think it also touches on how Hulk is a little bit awkwardly written in this mm -hmm. issue. And it's at the end of this whole mess, Tommy Tapper character, Hulk's like, I actually like the guy. He's fine. I'm just going to give him a headbutt and knock him out because I like him. Yeah, it doesn't make a ton of sense. It. A minute the... ago, Hulk was like, fuck this shit. I'm smashing everything. I don't like suck. that these robots are slapping me with their steel fingers. I don't like it. And yeah, a Hulk that you have tricked and trapped and pestered with robots is not the friendly, gregarious Hulk that we get at the end of this issue. The other way to read it would be that Hulk is some kind of a trickster who is being like, oh no, I'll be your friend. I like you. Psych. And then headbutts him. Which also would kill Tommy Tapper. Like, Tommy Tapper is dead now. Well, see, that's the other thing. Like, what if it wasn't an actual, like, like Hulk says, oh, you've been naughty, and so I've got to show you that you've been naughty. So if it wasn't, like, a real Hulk headbutt, yeah, his head would yeah. have exploded like that pigeon we were talking about the other day. Yeah, like the pigeon that flew into Randy Johnson's strike zone. Yeah, and I watched that video, which is fucking horrifying. It's amazing. It is amazing, it's... but it's also... Where did it go? It just, it's just not a pigeon anymore. Oh. oh. Yeah. But, so the other way to read it is Hulk was doing, like, a cute little, like, forehead-to-forehead -forehead thing. Like, like, I love you so much, right? <laughs> Sucker! Oh! Yeah, either way, that's not the Hulk. Like, what bothered me about the Hulk's portrayal in this is that the Hulk is entirely absent of rage, which is, in general, his defining characteristic. Especially if he has been pushed as far as he has been by Tommy Tapper and his asshole robots he had to jump all the way from new york to la and yeah. then he gets beaten up by robots yeah and, then and he's like, tied up yeah oh. and then he's just like i like you why would he like that guy there's no reason there's no reason to like tommy tapper hulk, he's theater trash canonically hulk has no love for people in tuxedos dancing tap dance that's true specifically he has had issues previously with gentlemen wearing top hats the ringmaster doesn't uh, like him at all. No. Him and his lousy crime circus. Mm. Albino baboon. Yeah, you know, he doesn't have an albino baboon. Those only exist in the DC universe. I want it to be here so bad. I know. Corey, we all want albino baboons to be everywhere. In a perfect world. Everybody has their own hypnotic albino, albino baboon. baboon. God, what a wonderful <laughs> utopia that would be. <laughs> Sound effect. There were so many sounds. There were a lot of sounds. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? Oh, man. It was tough to pick one. There were a lot, and there were a lot that we have not seen before. Yeah, I like the one that you mentioned, where where Kyle's getting beaten up by the robots. Yep, the crack-whack. Crack-whack was great. Uh, the crack and, and also, Corey, hmm. crack is whack. 
It's true. That's true. Dun, 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 yeah. Dun. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was really fun. There was a bowang that I really appreciated. Uh, there was a good bowang. Yep. There was the aforementioned cram. Mm-hmm. We also had a crang. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite? My favorite was at the very beginning when Strange causes Smiley to drop his rod and throws him in a garbage can and then slams the lid on top. Uh-huh. And the noise that that makes is bang. <laughs> Pretty good. I decided to go for one I don't think I've seen before, which is Doctor Strange erecting some kind of a bug zapper-like barrier for Tommy Tapper to run into. And it makes the noise zizzt. Z-I-Z-Z-T-T. And that did not feel good. No, I can't imagine that it did. We also get a zist, which is the noise that it makes when Valkyrie decides that she can blow up a female remote control with her sword. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good electronic sound. Yeah, this is really interesting sound effects that are difficult for me to say because I have a slight problem with sibling desks. So, good job. Bawang. Bawang's fun. Corey, mm-hmm. what were your favorite words in this issue? My favorite words in this issue happened on page two, and we may have actually gone through them already, and it's the whole sequence in which, like, it's just Steve being Steve, and he's walking down the street, and he's thinking, like, you know, Clea told me to take off, but that's cool, whatever, and then this guy's like, hey, I'm kidnapping you, and he's like, what? <laughs> I wasn't listening. <laughs> it's really good. Cleo wished to be alone this afternoon that she might further her studies in solitude, and I did not protest, wishing to walk the quiet of the city streets by myself. Hold it right there, fancy pants. I love that he gets called fancy pants. This heater's loaded. One funny move and I'll drill ya. Uh, pardon me, I wasn't paying attention. Allow me to apologize. Now, what is it you wanted? You a wise guy or something? This gun is real, Joker, and I don't mind having to use it. Yeah, it's a really fun exchange. I liked that a lot, too. I also, we talked about that it was maybe setting us up for something that didn't totally pay off, but I did enjoy the self-referential caption work at the beginning of the issue, where it says that Steve is unaware that he's being followed, and there's an exclamation point after followed, and then it says, and with that exclamation point... We open what promises to be one of the weirdest adventures ever to befall a group of Marvel superheroes. Read on, adventurous one. But I like referencing the exclamation point. I enjoyed that, and it reminded me of some of Bill Mantlo's later work. He did a very self-referential issue of Alpha Flight, in which the characters in Alpha Flight meet him, the writer of the series. That was a similar plot point comes up later on in a Grant Morrison issue of Animal Man that is also very well done. But it reminded me of that other story, and I liked that a lot. And I thought it was fun. That's a good one. I also really liked the Hulk when he is being beaten up by robots while he is tied up. He says, Arr! Fingers annoy, Hulk! He is getting so annoyed by those fingers. <laughs> I just love that as a general statement. Arr! Fingers annoy, Hulk! That was good. That was very Hulky. It was. It was. That I get. But then him deciding that the person who made those fingers annoy Hulk was his friend that he liked? No. No, that's not the Hulk. No. Corey, who in this issue of The Defenders was the best defender? So, initially, I was going with with Steve Mm -hmm. because he does a lot of good shit. He rescues his buddy Kyle, or, you know, he, he puts 
into action the 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 series of events that culminate in kyle's rescuing Uh he figures a lot of things out he makes those criminals look like fools and he really does yeah but then he does that super creepy shit with just like showing up in val's room yeah that's not great he lost the vote because of that okay and despite him being a sucker i gave it to the hulk because of two reasons one he smashes the shit out of that big scary robot and lots of other robots he does smash a lot of robots Mm -hmm. he does a good job destroying bad guy robots and second he teaches us a valuable lesson you know maybe interestingly also taught to a younger generation by another large green character shrek better out than in you can't fight gas hub don't do it I don't oh know if boy! Shrek said that or Shrek's wife. It's been a while, but it has been. I think it was probably Shrek. Either way, he's taught us so much. So many, things. so many words of wisdom from Shrek. I mean, he taught us that hey, now you're an all star. Wait, wasn't that Matchbox Twenty that taught us that? <laughs> okay, first Is of that all, I band? think it was Smash Mouth. Oh Jesus! But it was in the movie <laughs> Shrek. It's also in the movie Mystery Men. Wait, that was in Mystery Men? Yeah. It was in the montage where they're all making their uniforms. It was in a lot of movies. Damn. Yeah. So the Hulk? Yeah, the Hulk. (laughs) (laughs) Who was your best? Oh, man, I was going to go with Steve because he really, like, he just had so much fun with those mafia guys and was written in a really fun way throughout the issue. But you're right. It is too creepy that he showed up in Val's room. So, uh, yeah, fuck it. I'll go with the Hulk, too. It's a good call. Interesting. Okay. Conversely, who was the worst offender none of this garbage would have happened if it wasn't for the man who's as strong as two men at night nighthawk yeah i did have him down as a possibility he does a bad job throughout there's no redeeming things he does is he supposed to even have a secret identity that's the thing right it's really confusing he's either terrible at having a secret identity or he just doesn't have a secret identity Because he brings his spare Nighthawk costume and I guess just changes in front of everybody. Which means he's like stripped down in front of everybody too and then just put on his costume. In the middle of a fight. In the middle of a fight. fight. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do. Right? It's not like, as I understand it anyway, not having had the experience, like when real fights take place, people like take off a shirt. Sure. And then beat each other up. He's like, wait, no, I'm going to take everything off and then put these other things. Wait, guys, wait for me. I saw a guy kick a flip-flop at another guy one time when they were about to fight. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> like really dumb. Like, as just a, like a fuck you kind of gesture? Uh, I think like... he was just trying to take his flip-flops off because he didn't want to fight in flip-flops, which I understand. That, that makes sense. But also, if you're wearing flip-flops, maybe just don't get into a fight. Mm. So it wasn't like a weaponized... Like, no, not an intentional weaponized thing. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah, but I couldn't make sense of Nighthawk's lack of consistency in whether or not he is trying to disguise the fact that he is Nighthawk. But I did end up deciding to give the worst offender prize to Valkyrie because she also did not do a particularly good job. We have that whole thing where she decides she can't beat up robots that she decides are female, which is weird. She doesn't try though. No, but she says like, oh, I can't do that. I'm just going to sit here and get slapped in the I'm face. Just get here and get <laughs> by slapped robot. by robots. Because I think, I think that robot might be a lady. Which is insane. But also, she like, you, like we just said, she sits there and gets slapped by the robots. 
because it does not occur to her to try to break her bonds until after she sees the Hulk do it. Oh, that's the other reason that he's the best, is because he's the one that sets off this chain reaction of he breaks his bonds and then everybody else is like, oh yeah, I'll do that too. Oh yeah, we can break our bonds. Good idea, the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Because she's just like, well, I can't fight these female robots that are slapping me, so I guess I'll just sit here and continue to be handcuffed, despite the fact that I can easily break these things in half. And then she sees the Hulk do it and is just like, oh, yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. yeah, they, they all do it. Except yeah, Nighthawk. Except for Nighthawk, who has Steve do it for him. <sighs> Kyle. <laughs> yeah, he does do a pretty bad job. I just don't want to give it to him every time. I know, I know. So, I went with Val. Thank you. You're welcome. Sartorially speaking. Ah. What fashion choices in this issue do you feel are worthy of comment? Yes, good guys and bad guys. Wong is a good guy. He is. And we've seen his Charlie Brown-esque sweater before. Yes. But it was just really nicely done in this issue. It is. As I said, a well-colored issue. It's a particularly vibrant shade of green. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it cracked me up that the robots were wearing uh, tuxes with tails and top hats. That was fun. I liked Hodge's outfit a lot. He's wearing, like, tan trench coat with a, like, chimney sweep-style cap and a purple turtleneck. And it's just a it's, a, it's a nice look. Big mustache. Really well put together, dude. Yeah, like older gentleman. We don't really understand. Tommy Tapper says that Hodges is like a father to him, but he also clearly is subservient to Tommy Tapper. It's a weird relationship. Hodges doesn't make a ton of sense to me. And also that he's just like, oh, and also he's a brilliant robot inventor who just works as a stagehand. I think I guess I think behind the scenes he's actually the brains of the operation. He's pulling the strings. Oh, when he calls the tune, Tommy Tapper dances. Mm -hmm. I like Hodges, and I like how he dresses. Maybe he'll crop up later as another villain. That would be good. Yeah, I don't think he will. Mm. I, I get the distinct impression that Tommy Tapper and Hodges are kind of a one-off. They seemed like this whole scenario seems like it would make more sense. If it was in a hostess fruit pie head, then as an actual <laughs> Defenders issue. I wonder if, like, maybe that was Mantlo's initial idea. He's, he was contracted to write one of the hostess ads. And then they're like, oh, uh... We need man, 31 more pages. Yeah, Steve Gerber's really busy this month. Can you stretch out that hostess fruit pie ad? He's like, yeah, okay. So they'll get captured by robots, and then they'll escape, and then get captured by robots again. Yeah, sure, works for me. And that explains why the actual hostess ad is a repeat. Yeah, which was a bummer. I was hoping we'd get to I do know. another one this week. But yeah, it's the Terror Twins again. Yep. Again. Yeah. <sighs> Tired of them. <sighs> They're also apparently fraternal twins because the Abomination and Wendigo don't look very similar. No, 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 no. Yeah. So, a couple of issues ago, we decided we were going to have a new category in which we learn what the Hulk's rules is. Because Corey... Hulk rules. That's right. So when Hulk rules, what are the Hulk's rules? Well, we've been over it already, but we'll say it again. I'll say it again. Okay. And that's uh, better better out than in. You can't fight gas, Hub. Okay. You can't fight gas is Hulk's rules. I had for Hulk's rules, it is referenced when he frees himself from his shackles and says, Hulk is free. Free to smash. And, smash. and what he smashes is robots that are singing about how much money they have. Ah, fuck those. So what I saw as the Hulk's rule that I learned from this issue is 
that it's important to smash the trappings of industrialized capitalism whenever they try to restrain you and keep you down. Especially if you have to fight. Especially if you have to fight. And that's the Hulk's Rules. Now, Corey, in the year of our Lord, 1975, and the month of our Lord, December, do you have a way that we learn that you're doing it the wrong way? Ha! Yes. Well, there is a wrong way and a right way. Oh, yes. To do things. Oh, let's call it that. Okay. There's a wrong way and a right way to do things. And what was the wrong way in December? Of 1975. Turns out we are still doing things the long way, unfortunately, because of some choices made by President Reagan in 1982, but that doesn't have to do with what happened in December of 1975. My brain hurts! My brain hurts! What happens? Why is there time travel? It's okay. We'll catch up. So, on the 23rd of December, 1975, President Ford, who, it turns out, was one of Wong's many friends. And what? Yeah. Wong is, like, this. he knows so many people. Yeah. And he's dabbled in many fields. And one of the things that had rubbed him... The Wong way? The Wong way about the U.S. of A is our refusal to adopt a base 10 system of measuring things. I hear you, Wong. Yeah. So... It was kicking around Congress in the in the, the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. This idea of, why don't we join the rest of the world, I guess except Liberia, and adopt the metric system? So, at Wong's urging, President Ford put his signature on the Metric Conversion Act of 1975, which was intended to spur America towards the adoption and the, the use of the metric system mm-hmm. on a widespread basis, you know, with expe- uh, exceptions where if it would screw business up or, or whatever. Never really gathered steam, and mm. come 1982, Reagan says that was stupid, let's not do that, and keep mm. things as they are. But good job, Wong, for trying to stop us doing things the Wong way mm. and to use the metric system. Well, that is very interesting, and I learned a lot about metrics thank you (laughs) there's also a wong way to do entertainment and that was something that wong discovered in december of 1975 when after drugging those magia goons he decided to rifle through their pockets for a minute it turned out they had been given tickets to a big broadway show by tommy tapper when he sent them out to get money from steve because they had kidnapped kyle I guess. Right, that's what happened. Okay. But he was like, hey, go do this. And when you're in New York, perhaps you would enjoy going to this fun Broadway show. Now, the show is called Very Good Eddie. What? (laughs) Yup. There is a Broadway show called Very Good Eddie (laughs) that was a farcical musical comedy right up Tommy Tapper's alley. Sure. And Wong decided, you know what? I know a very good Eddie. Edwin Jarvis. So he took his buddy, Tony Stark's butler, Edwin Jarvis, Mm. to go see Very Good Eddie, which was a farcical sex comedy musical that was about three couples who ended up, I believe, inadvertently switching partners while they were on a cruise with a sex-obsessed voice teacher. That sounds complicated. It sounds like a very... Well, that's a farce for you. And impossible. That's a farce for you. Right. And they enjoyed it, but also 
I think Jarvis got the impression that Wong was maybe trying to set something up with like a wife swap thing. <laughs> and they had to, like, he had to sit Wong down. I was like, so, I mean, thank you. This was a, a fun musical. I'm not really into that. And Wong was just like, no, 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 no. Eddie, Eddie. Butler to Butler. <laughs> You're a very good Eddie. But I, I'm not into that either. And so then they had a nice little laugh at the, the misunderstanding that they had. And that was how they did things the Wong way that December. Oh, man. It's a long way to do things. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Uh, this is a weird-ass issue. We will be back next week with an issue of the new Teen Titans. And then we'll be back in two weeks with another Defenders issue. But we got some catching up on Giant Size issues to do, so I think we're going to hit up Giant Size Defenders number two. In which our host will attempt to determine the golden ratio of Manhattan to comprehensibility. Wish us luck. Yes, wish yourselves luck while you're at it. I mean, you know, while you're wishing. Oh, also, why don't you wish for some other nice things for yourself? Yes? New hats. Why not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, while you're wishing. Find a hat. You don't even have to find one. Just wish for it. Oh. I'm just saying, you know. What would you? What do you think our listeners should wish for? Good health. Gotta have your health. Very important. It's the best thing you can have. Mm. Next to a good hat. Yep. <laughs> good health and good hat to you, listeners. Oh, no. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. Good health and good hat. <laughs> the two H's. <laughs> if you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland <laughs> at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at ttwasteland underscore. Uh, Lisa has set up an Instagram account for us, which apparently she's putting pictures on sometimes. I've seen them. Oh, I haven't. I'm still not on Instagram. It's nice. Good. Glad to hear it. So yeah, you can check us out there. If you'd like to leave us a review on iTunes, I would really appreciate that. And if you would like to give us some money, you can do that at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. And that would be very nice. And now, this is Hub wishing you good health and good health. Yeah. And they know it. late 70s were a confusing time for so many people so many people i've heard yeah mm. i i was confused because i wasn't born yet well i don't remember either i was a tiny person yeah but i bet i bet things were really confusing for you you were like shapes colors what what <laughs> key parties i don't get it man <laughs> yep that's that's my impression <laughs> 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 infant cory <laughs> Shapes, colors, key parties. Oh, I don't understand. Yeah, I gotta get home. I don't know. Oh, boy. <laughs>